Hey, everybody. It is Tuesday, February 20th. We're back from a long weekend here at the Mo News Podcast. I'm Moshe Wanunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Moshe, I'm not going to lie. I'm a little jealous of your backdrop at the current moment. You are live and direct from Scottsdale, Arizona. Breaking news situation in North Scottsdale, Arizona. Chill with with the mountains and the palm trees. I'm actually here speaking at a uh, healthcare conference about the state of the election, state of the media. So I'm down here. We actually ended up bringing my parents out here and made a whole weekend of it. Went up to Sedona. Uh, thanks to the, all of you in the Mo News community who sent us good recommendations around the state of Arizona. But yeah, I'm, I'm here for another couple days enjoying the uh, the desert during the winter. I understand it's a different story in June and July. Well, Moshe, you will return possibly to some snow on the ground. It has mostly melted, but you basically missed a snowstorm, if we're calling it that, and then additional flurries. Yeah, no, Jill, I'm looking at a home here, so maybe we're not coming back. <laughs> no, no, I, I can't, I can't, I can't. We're coming back to Brooklyn. But it's beautiful here. I definitely recommend the uh, Desert Botanic Gardens. Uh, I didn't realize how many hundreds of kind of cacti there are. So that's something I, I learned today, and I look forward to bringing to this podcast. Uh, frequently. Is that somebody squeezing a baby toy that I'm hearing? <laughs> no, I think it's a bird. Is it? Oh, that's a bird. I don't think I'm going to pass the test of the Panic Gardens. There's many kinds of hummingbirds and a whole variety of desert creatures out here. But no, this is a, it's a natural sound, not a baby sound. But I will alert you if the baby makes noise uh, inside the room. All right, let's get to some headlines here. What we know about the death of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny as Russia arrests hundreds for mourning his death. The latest from the Middle East, where Iran reportedly is trying to prevent a wider war. Once again, Europe ahead of the U.S. when it comes to taking on big tech, why they are now investigating TikTok, potentially the biggest financial deal of the year so far. Capital One reportedly buying Discover Financial. In medical news, the FDA approved its first ever drug to reduce allergic reactions in people with severe food allergies. A big ruling in Alabama, the state Supreme Court finding that frozen embryos are children and what that could mean for the future of IVF in the state. And this President's Week, the U.S. presidents ranked and Moshe will excitedly be poking holes in the survey. I'm sure you guys may have heard about this, this ranking of the presidents. I have a few issues. <laughs> You'll hear about it at the end of the Looking forward to it. Plus, Moshe is on this day in history. Jill, we're going to tell you about a Saturday morning when the emergency broadcasting system forgot to say this was a test and accidentally made America think that a nuclear war had started. Let's start overseas in Russia. Police have now detained over 300 people who are paying tribute to opposition leader Alexei Navalny. He died last week at a remote Arctic penal colony where he was serving multiple prison terms. He was one of Vladimir Putin's most vocal critics and continued his criticism even after surviving an elaborate plot to poison him back in 2020. His death, if confirmed, a huge blow to many Russians. Hundreds of people in dozens of Russian cities streamed to ad hoc memorials and monuments to victims of political repression with flowers and candles on Friday and Saturday to pay tribute to the politician. And more than 200 arrests were made in St. Petersburg, Russia's second largest city. By Sunday evening, about 154 of those detained were sentenced to serve up to 14 days in jail. Navalny's team said Saturday that the politician was murdered and accused authorities of deliberately stalling the release of his body. His mother and lawyers received contradictory information from various institutions that they visited in their quest to retrieve the body, 
Russian authorities refusing to give the family the body until they say they complete their own investigations into the cause of death. His widow, Yulia Navalny, vowed on Monday to carry on her husband's crusade against the Russian regime, striving to build, quote, a free, peaceful, happy Russia, a beautiful Russia of the future, which my husband dreamed of so much. She made her announcement in a video statement on YouTube in which she accused Russian authorities of fatally poisoning her husband in prison. So Navalny, this go around, had been in jail since January 2021, so just over three years. That's when he returned to Moscow after recuperating in Germany from a nerve agent poisoning he blamed previously on the Kremlin. So they had tried to poison him. He was able to get an emergency flight out of Russia to Germany to be treated for that poisoning. He was warned by a number of people that if he flew back to Russia, they would probably put him back in jail and he was risking his own death. He said, listen, this is my country. I'm fighting corruption. I have courage here. I'm going to go back in Russia and fight. I'm not going to just sit outside of Russia for the rest of my life hiding. And so he returned, and then they sentenced him to multiple terms in prison, effectively a life sentence. In fact, the most recent uh, conviction was related to him not meeting with his probation officer. Why did he not meet with his probation officer? Because he was recovering from poisoning in Germany. And so he returned to Russia, and they're like, you didn't meet with the probation officer. And he's like, well, I was in a hospital recovering from poisoning. And they said, we don't care. We're putting you in prison. And then they put him off in this penal colony. Uh, going back more than a decade, Navalny had the guts to go up against Putin, hold rallies against him, run against him for president. And of course, Putin controls the political system there uh, and ensures his own reelection, but still didn't like how much power influence uh, Navalny was getting. He would put together these super sharp videos on YouTube, calling out all of Putin's allies, showing their extravagance, showing their palaces, showing their cars, showing the corruption of the Russian regime and clearly got under the skin of Putin here, and then suddenly they announced Navalny is dead late on Friday. The headlines here got a lot of attention around the globe. President Biden uh, saying over the weekend that Putin is responsible here. Whether he ordered this killing or not, he is responsible for the circumstance. Former President Trump, for his part, put out a uh, social media post over the weekend where he said that Navalny's death has made him more aware of what's happening here in the U.S., of radical left politicians, prosecutors, and judges. He made a point of not blaming Putin for anything here, tried to link basically Navalny's death to what he feels is happening to him uh, with the various indictments that he is facing here in the U.S. Uh, you also saw a number of leaders around the world both condemn Putin and then others who have a closer relationship with Putin, caution against, quote, jumping to conclusions. That includes the Brazilian president, Lula, who said that the death is under suspicion, but we have to carry out an investigation here to find out what Navalny died of. And Jill, as you mentioned, uh, the family would like to take his body uh, for a proper autopsy, but the Russian government, which has told the family that Navalny died of, quote, sudden death syndrome, which uh, I don't know is a thing, is going to come up with their own conclusion. And as we know, the Putin regime will declare what it will declare when it comes to cause of death here. Uh, Jill, I'll also mention that uh, I had the uh, fortune of sending a team to spend uh, a week with Alexei Navalny back in 2017. That was pre-poisoning, pre-prison sentence. He had served some shorter sentences at that time. We did a feature on him for uh, a CBS uh, in-depth series. And we made a point of asking uh, Navalny in that interview how likely is it do you think that you'll survive, you know, going up against Putin here? And he said, in absolute terms, uh, not flinching, 50-50, 50-50, he'll kill me, 50%, I'll live. Uh, he knew what he was up against, but he felt it was his obligation for the Russia that he dreamed of, a free Russia, uh, to risk that. Mosh, in a world where so many people lack courage, 
especially in politics, it's hard to even appreciate what he was up against and the amount of courage that he had. Right. And we'll note, Navalny was not perfect. I mean, people take issue with various things Navalny did. At the same time, you know, ultimately, he believed that Vladimir Putin, who's been in charge now for the better part of 25 years in Russia, uh, is leading the country down the wrong path. And over time, you've seen that Putin has less and less tolerance for any sort of dissent in the country. Um, Hence why, clearly, he saw uh, Navalny as a threat here. It led to his poisoning. It led to his imprisonment. And now it's led to his death. Uh, The former U.S. ambassador to Russia, uh, upon learning this news, said on Friday that he would compare Navalny to Mandela and other leaders of that sort over time in terms of his courage to fight for what he believed is right in his country, even as he was facing potential death. All right, now to the Middle East. After four months of consistent attacks on U.S. and Israeli personnel and targets across the region, Iran privately urging Hezbollah and other armed groups to exercise restraint against U.S. forces. This is according to officials in the region. The Washington Post reports that while Iran is publicly calling for proxy terrorist groups that it arms and funds in Iraq and Syria to keep up the fight in private, they are urging caution. As of this weekend, Iranian-backed militias in Iraq and Syria had not attacked U.S. forces in more than two weeks, an unusual lull since the war in Gaza began in October. The militants held their fire even after a U.S. drone strike in Baghdad killed a senior Kataib Hezbollah official, and it follows a visit by the commander of Iran's Quds Force to Baghdad, leading to a pause in attacks on U.S. troops by Iran-aligned groups in Iraq, a sign perhaps that Tehran wants to prevent a broader conflict. At the same time, it is not consistent across the region as Hezbollah in Lebanon continuously attacks Israel and the Houthis in Yemen continue to target ships in the Red Sea. Over the weekend, American military officials struck multiple Houthi targets, including what they called an unmanned underwater vessel. In addition to the underwater drone, the Houthis were also using a remotely piloted boat to launch an attack. The Iranian-backed groups form what they are calling an axis of resistance. It's a loose alliance of armed terror groups that includes Hamas in Gaza, Hezbollah in Lebanon, the Houthis in Yemen, and Kataib Hezbollah in Iraq and Syria. Iran uses them to spread its influence across the region and attack U.S. and Israeli interests. Hezbollah in Lebanon is the largest group. It is the richest and the most well-armed terror group in the world. They have been engaged in a low-level war against Israel since the Hamas October 7th attack. Iran has been praising what it calls Hezbollah's sacrifices, but cautioned that an all-out war with Israel would risk precious gains in the region. Yeah, so the way they argue at these intel analysts, they believe that Iran thinks they're winning here. That so far, in just the last four months, they blew up the Israeli-Saudi peace process that would have led to a Palestinian state through diplomacy, would have effectively led to zero influence for Hamas or very little for Hamas. Remember, Saudi Arabia is the Iranian arch nemesis here. So they wanted to get ahead of them here and lead to a situation of a larger war. They believe they've weakened Israel, shown Israeli vulnerability, uh, lessened Israel and U.S. standing abroad and across the Muslim world. And so some inside Iran want to sit on their gains here. They believe an all-out war with Hezbollah would actually diminish that group, allow the Israelis to go on offense here, uh, set Lebanon and Hezbollah years back. Remember, there's estimates now in Gaza that you know Hamas is 80 to 90 percent depleted, that rebuilding Gaza uh, could take upwards of 60 years. Not that Iran really cares about that, but still, they don't want to see the same thing happen to Hezbollah or their prized group. 
And remember also, domestically, Iran successfully put down the democracy protests that lasted uh, over a year in the aftermath of the death of Masa Amini. Uh, those protests in Iran, the Iranian regime killed hundreds, imprisoned thousands, some say more than 10,000, and they quieted the streets, ensuring the authoritarian rule continues there. So Iran is trying to be very strategic in its approach here and doesn't want to basically overshoot. At least that, again, is the intel here that we're seeing. Back to the situation between Israel and Hamas now. The Israeli government over the weekend issued a new deadline to Hamas to release all remaining Israeli hostages, what's believed to be 134 people uh, that are still being held in Gaza. The deadline is March 10th. That is the beginning of the holy Muslim holiday of Ramadan. The Israelis saying if the hostages are not released by March 10th, they will face an invasion of the city of Rafah in southern Gaza that effectively is the last stronghold for Hamas now that the Israelis have taken control of the rest of Gaza, effectively the rest of Gaza. Israel says they've effectively destroyed 18 of 24 original Hamas battalions. So there's six battalions left. Of those four of them, the majority of them are in Rafah. So the Israelis here are giving uh, Hamas effectively three weeks to give up. Uh, Very unlikely that they'll follow through here, but it does come as there's major international concern about an Israeli invasion of Rafah. That's where an estimated 1.5 million Palestinian civilians are. That is more than four times the pre-war population. The majority of those are displaced Palestinians from northern and central Gaza uh, who have lost their homes and been displaced from northern Gaza, now moved to Rafah, now being told to evacuate Rafah. The Israelis have come up with a plan here for several camps along the Gaza coast. They're asking the Egyptians and the U.S. to effectively organize them and fund them. Meanwhile, the Egyptians are also taking uh, precaution here. While they say they will not accept any displaced Palestinians, they have fears of Hamas extremism. Uh, Their economy is already not good in the country. They don't want to become a permanent home for Palestinians um, in the Sinai Peninsula. Nonetheless, they are building effectively an eight-mile-by-eight-mile enclosed encampment take in a bunch of uh, displaced Palestinians. They fear there'll be a rush at the border that will overwhelm them. So the Egyptians here, as a precaution, are building an encampment uh, to take in displaced Palestinians should there be a rush at the border. And most potentially what could be complicating any sort of hostage deal is that Israel has destroyed a lot of uh, Hamas, at the very least, their infrastructure. Yahya Sinwar uh, reportedly has not been heard from for a couple of weeks. Yeah, He's been in hiding under Khan Yunus and maybe under Rafah. They're not sure where, but uh, Hamas officials outside of Gaza, remember Sinwar effectively runs uh, Hamas in Gaza, but then you have the other leaders who live in Doha, Qatar, uh, Beirut, and other places. And Sinwar has had to approve all hostage deals, all major moves, because he runs Hamas inside Gaza. They haven't heard from him. Israeli officials now believe that Hamas is looking for a replacement for Sinwar because they don't know where he is. If he's in hiding, he's gone silent uh, or he could be dead. It's unclear right now. Remember, the Israelis say that he has been traveling and moving with Israeli hostages as sort of protection, effectively civilian shields for himself. But still a very long period of silence uh, from Sinwar, which, of course, makes a deal more difficult and makes it more difficult to manage what's going on with what's left of Hamas in Gaza, though they do note that there have been a bunch of Hamas fighters who've given up uh, in the last couple of weeks, have basically surrendered. And so they believe that those guys haven't heard from Sinwar either. And so instead of continuing the fight, they're giving up to save their own lives. Uh, Jill, one thing we should note as we watch this Rafa situation, it's going to continue to dominate headlines here. And uh, the Israelis here are trying to figure out what to do because they're trying to finish off Hamas But you have the civilian situation, which uh, many people in the world are very concerned with, uh, including the U.S. government, other foreign governments who tell the Israelis, you can't go full blast into Rafah or you're going to risk killing a lot of uh, civilians there. 
And so the Israelis are going to come up with a plan here. And so that involves three-week heads up. Though that's not something that many militaries in the world would do either. They'll tell you. The Israelis will say, listen, we're giving you a three-week heads up on an invasion. So they're in a difficult situation militarily. At the same time, the plight of the Palestinians in Gaza is extremely difficult. The humanitarian situation uh, has grown only worse uh, day by day. The biggest hospital in southern Gaza is no longer operational. The Israelis have called for that to be evacuated. The Israelis saying that Hamas has been using that facility, uh, that they have found weapons in that facility. But what that means is for injured Palestinians, sick Palestinians, those who are looking for care. Uh, have fewer and fewer places to turn to. So uh, dire situation there. And we'll watch these next few weeks to see what unfolds there. All right, plenty of news coming up. But first, we want to thank a few of our sponsors this week, starting with Factor Meal. At least in my house, I know we are pressed for time and we do still want to eat healthy and nutritious meals. And that's why we are so excited about Factor. It is America's number one ready-to-eat meal delivery service. They can help you fuel up fast for breakfast, lunch, and dinner with chef-prepared, dietitian approved ready-to-eat meals delivered straight to your door. I have been loving them. I grab them straight from the fridge, heat them up in the microwave, and they are legit delicious. They are not like frozen grocery store dinners. And you get to skip the extra trip to the grocery store, the chopping, the prepping, the cleaning up while still getting the flavor and nutritional quality you need. You could choose from over 35 weekly meals. It's flexible with your schedule. Get as many or as little as you need. You could choose 6 to 18 meals per week, plus you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. And do not sleep on their cold-pressed juices, shakes, and smoothies. I I think the cold-pressed juices might be my favorite. So head to factormeals.com slash monews5050 and use the code monews50 to get 50% off that is code MONUS50 at factormeals.com slash MONUS50 to get 50% off. All right, want to know one of my favorite new sounds? Here it is. That's the sound I hear when I'm learning a new language with Babbel. And I know this is on many people's bucket list. If you want to learn a new language this year, I guarantee that'll be one of your favorite sounds as well. Uh, I have been trying amid everything, Jill, fatherhood, uh, the news, to learn Spanish using Babbel. I found the lessons easy, uh, fulfilling, feel like I'm learning relevant conversational items that I'll actually use. Uh, it's sort of the opposite of my high school French class where I feel like I learned stuff and then tried to use it with French people. And they're like, nobody talks like that. That's so formal. <laughs> uh, and so what I like about Babbel is that I feel like I'm learning stuff that I can actually use. Now, of course, the best way to learn a foreign language is through immersion. But the second best way is through Babbel. They have quick 10-minute lessons. They're handcrafted by hundreds of language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. They've already sold more than 16 million subscriptions. And if you don't love them, they do have a money-back guarantee. So they have a special deal right now for the Mo News community. Right now, 50% off a one-time payment for a lifetime Babbel subscription. Again, it's only available to our listeners, and you can find it over at babbel.com slash monews. That is B-A-B-B-E-L, babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L.com slash monews. Get 50% off at babbel.com slash monews. Rules and restrictions do apply. And Mosh, of course, on this podcast, we're always talking about health trends and food trends, and it can be very difficult to get all of your nutrients. Well, one way to get all the important ones is Athletic Greens AG1 Powder. I've been using it for months. It is just one scoop with a glass of water in the morning. It is easy and quick and lets you get on with your day knowing that you have gotten over 75 important ingredients, including tons of vitamins and minerals. It also has pre and probiotics to support digestion and gut health. 
With your first purchase of AG1, Athletic Greens is giving Mo News listeners a free one-year supply of their vitamin D and five free travel packs of AG1. Visit drinkag1.com slash monews to take advantage of this offer. You can get a discounted monthly subscription. Or if you prefer, you could just try it one time for just a month. Again, that is drinkag1.com slash monews, M-O-N-E-W-S for this special deal and really start to take ownership of your health. Time now for the speed read. This from The Guardian. The EU has launched a formal investigation into whether TikTok has broken online content rules, including the safeguarding of children. The European Commission said it opened official proceedings against the video platform owned by the Chinese company ByteDance. It's over potential breaches of the Digital Services Act, or the DSA. It said the investigation was looking at areas including protection of minors, maintaining records of its advertising content, and whether TikTok's algorithms led users down damaging content, quote, rabbit holes. Officials say the protection of children is a top enforcement priority under the DSA. The investigation into child safety on TikTok includes age verification and the default privacy settings used for children's accounts. Yeah, as we've told you on this podcast, Europe has been much more aggressive in going after tech companies than the U.S. has been. Last April, the data watchdog in Ireland fined TikTok almost $400 million for breaches of EU data law in their handling of children's accounts. That same month, the U.K. Information Commissioner fined the company almost $20 million for illegally processing the data of children under the age of 13, the minimum age for users of TikTok. Back to the DSA case here that we're talking about, Jill, companies that breach the DSA, the larger law in the EU, face a threat of fines of up to 6% of their global revenue. So pretty significant here. TikTok has said it would continue to work with experts and the industry to keep young people on the platform safe. That said, Europe takes this very seriously, and they have found a number of shortcomings here when it comes to TikTok. We should also say that Europe is scrutinizing Twitter, or X, which I guess has been their name for more than six months now. Still feels like I call them Twitter. That said, uh, they are being investigated by the Europeans for a failure to block illegal content, inadequate measures against disinformation. Apple is also under EU scrutiny here for their behavior in the music streaming app market. And so you see here, Europe taking this issue very seriously. Uh, They've been early on AI. They've been pushing back on website privacy. You can thank them, by the way, for the fact there's only one phone cord and power cord uh, from Apple these days because they sued them on that front. So the Europeans really taking these companies to task and challenging them when it comes to uh, kids and privacy. Uh, And we did see a headline just into the weekend that the U.S. Senate may actually do something about uh, children and social media, but we'll await Congress uh, actually passing that and President Biden signing that to see if uh, the U.S. starts to follow the Europeans here. From the Wall Street Journal, Capital One plans to buy Discover in a deal that would marry two of the largest credit card companies in the U.S. The all-stock deal could be announced today, according to people familiar with the matter. Capital One is making a big bet at a booming time in the credit card sector. More consumers are moving from paying with cash to cards as a result of generous rewards programs and an explosion of online shopping. Credit card debt fell during the pandemic, but it is rising again And that translates into lucrative interest charges that cardholders pay to the banks that issue their credit cards. Buying Discover gives Capital One, a credit card lender with a market value of a a little over $52 billion, a network that would vastly increase its power in the payments ecosystem. Card networks are critical to enabling transactions and setting fees that merchants pay when consumers shop with the credit cards. 
Although much smaller than Visa and MasterCard, Discover is one of the few competitors to those companies in the U.S., and it is one of a small number of card issuers that also has a payments network. Yeah, so Capital One right now is the ninth largest bank in the country. It is a major credit card issuer and mainly uses Visa and MasterCard for most of its cards. So they would switch at least some of their cards to the Discover network while continuing Visa and MasterCard on other cards. Capital One also plans to maintain the Discover brand on the cards. That assumes, of course, that the U.S. government here will sign off on the deal and the deal goes through. For Capital One, the deal would further expand the number of cardholders. Many Discover cardholders have high credit scores, so that would be key here for Capital One. And it comes, as we've seen for more than a decade here, a major U.S. banks aggressively competing for customers by rolling out new credit cards and enhancing their existing ones with more cashback offers, uh, points, programs, hotel deals, uh, travel, etc. And what's key here for Capital One, by owning the Discover network, they would be able to negotiate uh, the interchange fees and other terms directly with merchants for card transactions that travel over its network. In short, that would make Capital One a competitor to Visa and MasterCard here. So we'll see if this goes through. If it does, it would be the biggest deal of the year so far. All right, now to some medical news from NPR. The FDA has approved a drug to treat severe food allergies, including milk, eggs, and nuts. The drug is called Zolair. It helps reduce severe allergic reactions brought on by accidental exposure to certain foods. It is considered the first medication approved by the FDA that can help protect people against multiple food allergies. The medication is not intended for use during an allergic reaction. Instead, it is designed to be taken repeatedly every few weeks to help reduce the risk of reactions over time. Still, the FDA says people who take the drug should continue to avoid foods that they are allergic to. So this drug is administered by injection every two to four weeks. Over time, Zolar has proven to help some people tolerate foods they are allergic to. That's according to a study that was sponsored by NIAD, the National Institute for Allergy and Infectious Diseases. The trial included 168 patients who were allergic to peanuts and at least two other foods. Two-thirds of them took Zolar for four to five months and were eventually able to consume about two and a half peanuts without symptoms like body hives, persistent coughs, or vomiting. Overall, uh, the estimate is that one in 16 adults in the U.S. have a food allergy. According to the CDC, it does impact women and Black adults at higher rates. And there is no current cure for food allergies, though uh, a bunch of uh, treatments. And Jill, I know that you recently interviewed an allergy expert for our premium pod. Yeah, my daughter had severe, severe food allergies. She was allergic to everything from peanut to eggs, sesame. I mean, it was really debilitating. And she did this homeopathic treatment. But if that is not available to you, the fact that there is some type of treatment in the way of a shot, that could be something that changes people's lives for the better. So I'm thrilled that they're making so much progress in this field. Jill, we should note that right now the cost of the medication ranges from about $3,000 a month to $5,000 a month though the AP reports that the cost could be brought down by insurance. So we'll stay on top of that uh, when that's released. From Alabama.com, the Alabama Supreme Court ruled Friday that frozen embryos are children, allowing a wrongful death lawsuit to proceed against an Alabama fertility clinic where several couples' embryos were destroyed. Three couples are suing the clinic after those frozen embryos were destroyed when a wandering hospital patient dropped the specimens. A lower court dismissed the lawsuit, but the state Supreme Court overruled that decision, stating that the couples can sue for wrongful death because the embryos are considered children. The Center for Reproductive Medicine, which is a fertility clinic used by the couples, 
And Mobile Infirmary Medical Center, where the embryos were being stored, claimed that the couples could not sue for wrongful death because Alabama law does not cover embryos outside of the womb. Alabama Supreme Court Justice Jay Mitchell wrote that the Alabama law, dubbed the Wrongful Death of a Minor Act, applies to all unborn children, regardless of their location. Yeah, so this could have some significant implications here. The Medical Association of the State of Alabama had warned in their brief on this that a ruling could bring about harmful consequences for IVF fertility treatment if the court went in this direction, ruling that embryos are children. According to the brief, the increased exposure to wrongful death liability would at best increase the costs associated with IVF. But more ominously, they write, the increased risk of legal exposure might result in Alabama fertility clinics shutting down entirely and specialists moving to other states to practice fertility medicine. Anti-abortion groups and lawmakers for a while have been trying to make it illegal to destroy embryos, though no other state high court has ruled on the matter in this way until Friday. And it comes as at least 11 states right now have broadly defined personhood as beginning at fertilization in their state laws. In Alabama, voters just a few years ago passed a ballot measure that granted fetuses full personhood rights, but did not mention in that law frozen embryos. But the court here interpreted that that way. So there are major implications here in Alabama and across the country because of the way IVF works. To give patients the best chance of pregnancy, multiple embryos are created in hopes that a patient can try again if an attempt at pregnancy fails. As a result, as many eggs as possible are often fertilized and kept frozen. After a patient becomes pregnant, what to do with the remaining embryos can often be an agonizing choice. Do you pay to keep them frozen? Do you destroy them? Do you donate them? They are your genetic children. So now parents or clinics in Alabama will have to figure out whether disposing of the fertilized eggs or embryos uh, that remain will make them liable for punitive damages. Uh, And so a lot of implications here. And so this is a case that we'll watch and will probably be taken up to a federal level at some point, the U.S. Supreme Court. Well, just following the logic of this decision, you could see an argument where they would say that that if you destroy an embryo, that that's murder. I mean, even if it's your embryo. Yeah. The implications here are are really vast. Jill, a lot of implications here. So uh, I think it's safe to say that this is not the last we'll be hearing about this case. And Moshe, I am in no way making light of this story because the implications are huge. And obviously, this is heartbreaking for the three couples who sued the clinic and the hospital. But could we just discuss the fact that a patient wandering around the hospital somehow got into the freezer and destroyed these embryos? Yeah, certainly a lot of questions here uh, and heart- heartbreaking implications here for the families. You imagine when you uh, create these embryos and they're frozen, that there are enough security measures where a wandering patient can't access them. All right. And finally, this from Politico. Moshe, I know you are not a fan of the following story. Wah, wah. <laughs> Jill, Jill, sometimes we do stories on this podcast just so we can poke holes in them <laughs> because they receive so much attention. So you, here we go, folks. You're like, we're not doing the story. I'm like, no, we're doing it. You, you could just explain why you don't like it. Anyway, presidential. <laughs> why I don't like it. Yes. <laughs> presidential experts in a new survey rank President Biden as the 14th best president in American history and put former President Trump last. This tally came from 154 presidential specialists who are current and recent members of the American Political Science Association. So they were asked to give every president a score from zero to 100. On the survey's zero to 100 scale of overall greatness, a rating of 50 means that a president was average. Zero means a president is considered a failure. 
Only the top three presidents, Abraham Lincoln at number one, he got 95 points, followed by FDR and then George Washington, both also scored above 90. The drop off was sharp from there with no one else above an 80 rating and roughly half of the presidents were rated below 50. Yeah, so uh, Biden here scored a 62, just above 62. He's tied with John Adams on this scale. He's about two spots above Ronald Reagan. Trump averaged with 11 points at the bottom of the uh, rating of all presidents of all time. Jill, I have a few issues here. One, (laughs) so they invited 525 presidential experts to do this, and only 150 participated, which tells you something, that about 70% of presidential experts are like, I want nothing to do with this. Two, you're asking historians or political science experts to rate a president that hasn't even finished with his term yet in Joe Biden and Donald Trump, who just finished his term, when you have 200 years or 150 years or 100 years to judge the terms in terms of history of these other presidents. So to me, I just feel like it's an unfair thing. It breaks the cardinal rule of historians. Uh, I also question the last place showing for Donald Trump, uh, given that, you know, looking at presidents in history, Andrew Johnson, who killed much of the progress of the Lincoln post-Civil War, put us on a path of Jim Crow laws and 100 more years of institutionalized racism. He's at the bottom of my list. So is James Buchanan, who effectively was indifferent to the start of the Civil War. Warren Harding was drunk most of his presidency. Andrew Jackson committed genocide uh, and ended the Federal Reserve. Anyway, I could go on and on and on with like some really crappy presidents in American history. So not to question but to question these political science experts who uh, came up with some of these ratings. And notably, their politics here did play a factor. They actually asked in the survey for the political leanings of these political science experts, these presidential experts. And so, for example, Joe Biden, on the scale here, among the conservatives, he's the 30th best president of all time. The liberals made him the 13th best president of all time. The moderates made him the 20th best president of all time. And so clearly here, some you know major major differences among these presidents when it comes to the politics of the historians ranking them. Notably, they made Obama the seventh best president of all time, just after Jefferson and Truman, ahead of Lyndon Baines Johnson, who had some remarkable accomplishments. Yes, he had Vietnam. Anyway, I could discuss this forever, but I do feel like when you saw this headline uh, about you know Trump being last, Biden being up there as one of the greatest presidents of all time, uh, I immediately wanted to ask some questions and dive a bit deeper. Uh, into this ranking. That is what you get with the Mo News podcast, people. (laughs) (laughs) And and that's not to say there aren't major issues with the Trump presidency. I just feel like there should be a statute of limitations that you can't, that historians or any ranking that judges the long-term impact of presidents uh, should basically not allow any presidents of the past 20 or 30 years to be included in that. I feel like you need a certain amount of decades of perspective to really be able to judge where we're president ranks. You need some distance. I totally get it, especially given yeah. that Trump is now the front runner for the GOP nomination. So it, it's way too political. I totally agree, Jill. And I hope uh, all of you have enjoyed this last speed read of today. <laughs> all right, now time for On This Day in History, where we do try to put a bit of distance uh, between us and major historical events. We begin in 1872. On this day, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Met's, open to the public. It quickly becomes one of the most famous museums in the world and will host uh, one of those Met Galas coming up very soon this spring. On this day in 1959, a 16-year-old Jimi Hendrix makes his stage debut with an unnamed band at a synagogue in Seattle. Uh, He had bought himself a guitar for $5 and taught himself to play. Jimi, of course, uh, one of the greatest rock stars of all time. Life cut short, but fun little factoid for all of you today. 
On this day in 1971, the U.S. emergency broadcast system mistakenly activated the erroneous national alert that would be used during a nuclear attack. You know how they say this is a test, this is only a test? Well, at 9.33 a.m. on a Saturday morning, uh, on February 20th, 1971, they didn't play that. It turns out that the two tapes, the test tape and the real tape, in case there's a nuclear uh, war going on, were located next to each other. They were hung side by side on pegs in front of an operator, and a certain individual pulled the wrong tape and transmitted the wrong version of it. It would take them 40 minutes uh, before they would actually say this was only a test. And given the delayed reaction, the complete confusion across America, it did lead many to say later that if the Soviets were to launch an attack on the U.S., they should definitely do it on a Saturday morning (laughs) because nobody actually knew what was going on. All right, Jill, this one's for you. On this day in 1997, Cosmo Kramer adopted a stretch of expressway during a Seinfeld episode. You know, whenever I'm driving and I see one of the signs that says, you know, this company has adopted this stretch of highway and I'll see like a a bottle or something on the side of the road and I think no one's picking that up. I do think of that episode. Yes, in that episode, uh, Kramer decides that uh, lanes should be comfier. So he repaints the lanes from three lanes to two lanes and causes a lot of traffic accidents. Jill, given our mutual love for Seinfeld, we have special dispensation for non-historical events but that took place during a Seinfeld episode on this day. They get mentioned <laughs> alongside actual historical events on this podcast. All right, we mentioned Hendrix. This is also a significant day in Rihanna history. She was born on this day in 1988, born Robin Rihanna Fenty in Barbados. She, at the age of 16, while Hendrix was playing at a uh, synagogue in Seattle, she was discovered, uh, brought to America, landed a deal with uh, Def Jam, and uh, the rest is history. And Jill, it turns out that February 20th is a significant day in music history beyond that. It turns out that today was the birthday for Kurt Cobain of Nirvana, and Olivia Rodrigo turns 21 today. And my daughter is obsessed with her song Vampire, which includes um, the F word, which I'm not thrilled about, which makes me such a mom to even say that. Oh, Jill, they're eventually (laughs) going to learn the word anyway. No, my daughter will point it out and be like, she said the F word. (laughs) Well, Olivia Rodrigo, 21 today. So uh, have a drink, Olivia. All right, everybody. A big thank you for listening to the Mo News podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this with your friends. It will help us grow. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode and review us in the App Store. Yeah, thanks for listening, Jill. Uh, Stay warm out there in New York. (laughs) Oh, whatever. Uh, I'm headed back. (laughs) I'm headed back from Arizona in a couple days, reportedly. I have a ticket. We have a ticket. Well, I hope you, your family, and that loud bird have a very good day. Okay, bye, everybody. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.